Have I ever told you the story about um, when I broke into a house to steal a beer can? I actually broke into several houses. The only time the police ever came to my house was actually for something that I didn't do, but I would have done it if I thought about it, which was uh, some neighbors we didn't like. Somebody took all their Christmas lights and smashed them in the street. I probably would have done that if I thought about it. Um, but this, I was kind of a, kind of a bad kid in middle school. Um, collected beer cans. Beer cans were the rage in the uh, 70s. When I was in middle school, this was, this was quite the hot collectible. You can do some research. You can find it. I'm not, I'm not telling you. At one point, I had 1,000 different beer cans on shelves on my walls. I was a member of the BCCA, the Beer Can Collectors of America. I went to the Beer Can Collectors of America convention in Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't sell my collection before the bottom dropped out of the market. All I could get was a PV amp by the time I decided to get into guitar and quit collecting beer cans. But there was this time when my next door neighbor, Michael, had this beer can that I didn't have and I really wanted. And so my friend uh, Stacy, he was a guy that lived a couple doors up, um, I helped him, boosted him up so he could crawl through the window so that we could steal this beer can, which I then promptly put on my shelf downstairs. Now, my friend Michael was over my house almost every single day. Um, and what I didn't realize is that he had written his name in indelible marker on the bottom of his beer can. So the next time he came over to my house, um, he said, Kevin, where'd you get that? I was like, uh, and he picked it off the shelf and he looked at it and I was busted. What would you do? Have you ever broken the law? Well, don't answer that out loud. But I, I'm curious, what is so valuable or beautiful to you that you would break a law to get it? What we're getting at tonight is the idea of treasure and the power that treasure has. I love this quote by Erasmus. Um, we are, you know, celebrating the Reformation, 500th anniversary of the Reformation next year, almost uh, a year from today, 364 days from today. And um, you couldn't, in some ways, have had the Reformation without Erasmus, who was the first one to put together a Greek New Testament which Luther and other people used then to translate the Bible into the vernacular, into the common language, so people could begin to read the Bible. And um, I, I love this quote from one of his letters. He says, when I have a little money, I buy books. If I have any left, I buy food and clothes. And if you've been to my house, you know that that fits me pretty well. Um, my, my parents used to be so frustrated, my sister and my mom especially, because if ever they would buy me clothes, through most of my 20s for Christmas, I would promptly take them back and then use the money to uh, buy books. And finally, they just decided, why are we spending all this time shopping for you? We should just give you money and let you go buy books. Um, Jesus talks a lot about this kind of thing. And I, what I want to submit to you tonight is that these par this parable, actually two parables, very short little parables that go together that talk about treasure and talk about how the kingdom of God is like treasure, have a lot to tell us about what it means to be truly human, as well as what the kingdom of God is all about. And as you know, this semester we've been doing a series on the parables. The parables are surprising stories about the king and his kingdom. And I guess one of the surprises of these parables about treasure is that so often if you talk to Christians and you ask them what's important to them about their faith or what their faith is all about, they often will answer in terms of propositional truths that they believe or that they know. And yet, Jesus tells here a parable, a story, that shows us that the kingdom is not just about things you know. It's about love, 
desire, treasure, what we find beautiful, what we find valuable. Let's look at the passage. It's in Matthew chapter 13. I put it down on the sheet here. You can read along. Follow along with me as I read. Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Pray with me, and then we're going to dig into what does it mean for the treasure to be like a great treasure, for the kingdom, sorry, to be like a great treasure. Lord, we do thank you for these short parables, but powerful parables. And Lord, may you use your word to expose us, our hearts, what we really live for, what we really treasure, what we really value. And more importantly, Lord, through your word and through the preaching of your word, may you show us what it is that you value and treasure. And may that melt our hearts. Send your spirit to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Finding a treasure. It's actually a pretty realistic story in Jesus' day. The banks uh, really weren't very reliable. People often would take valuable things and bury it in a field. And, you know, the Middle East, particularly the area of Israel, is an area where you've got different superpowers going back and forth, crisscrossing the land. So often you would bury something, and then either the person who buried it and didn't tell somebody where it was would die, or war would sort of come in and disrupt everything. So it wasn't uncommon, actually, for treasures to be discovered in a field. The story that Jesus tells is quite realistic. Uh, as a matter of fact, even the, the valuable field that, or the valuable treasure that you would sell everything to possess, even that could, I suppose, be realistic. Cleopatra had a pearl, supposedly, that if you calculated it by today's standards, would be worth $4 billion. So, and here's the other thing. In Israel, possession was ten-tenths of the law. It was the whole thing. So it doesn't matter. Now, Jesus isn't teaching, hey, here's the way you make a buck. Find a treasure on a field, don't tell anybody, and then go buy the field. That's not the point. And you know that's not the point when he tells a second story about treasure. And the common element in both of them is what? Selling everything to gain the treasure. So whether you stumble upon it or whether you're actually looking for it, the key element is when you see something this valuable, do everything you have to to acquire it. And that's where it starts, right? Well, with what we call an epiphany. Finding the treasure, finding the kingdom of God starts with this epiphany. I see it. I see it. And again, although one is looking for it and one stumbles upon it, both recognize treasure when they see it. But it's a hidden treasure, isn't it? And those who find it regard themselves as blessed rather than as people who earned it. Both of them are filled with joy because they realize that they found something that's incredibly valuable, but it's not something that they earned. It's something that they want to have, uh, something that would bless them beyond belief. And it's interesting if you think about this. What, what do you do when you feel blessed beyond what you deserve. One of my favorite quotes by the writer G.K. Chesterton, who's a very quotable 
a fabulous writer from the early 20th century. He said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. I actually uh, was at a show at the Ryman once, and you all may not remember that, that movie once. Has anybody seen that documentary with the swell season? Yeah. So we got to watch, Wendy and I got to see the swell season there at the Ryman, and it was an incredible show. And what was really amazing, you know, the guy, uh, whatever his name is, Glenn Hansard, is that? Yeah. I forget his last name, whatever. Anyway, Glenn. You know, he played in this band for years and years and years and never really went anywhere, okay? And so all of a sudden, he's, uh, he's like huge, and he's playing the Ryman, and he, and he gets up there, and he talks about how he had went to Groon's Guitar uh, Store, which used to be right behind the Ryman. Now it's on 8th Avenue, but it used to be downtown on Lower Broad. And he's talking about how, you know, he's, you can tell he's just like overwhelmed at the turn of events in his life. And it was a really profound moment because he, he says, you know, you work all your life slaving away in this band. You tour America one time and you can barely play like the basement. And then a friend of yours makes a little movie. You write some songs for it. Next thing you know, he wants you to be in the movie. And all of a sudden, you're touring places like the Ryman. And you didn't do anything for it. He just basically like wrote some songs, and then this movie, and it was found. And he's just sitting there, and he's just—you can tell—he's overwhelmed at the blessing, but he has nobody to thank for it. It was a profound moment. You're watching him like be overwhelmed, and all he can say is "ah," and, and expletive. And I thought so much of that Chesterton quote, and I wonder—it's actually a very revealing thing. When you feel blessed, what direction does it take you? Where do you go? Do you have someone to thank? You know, it's even more crazy if you're a Christian and you feel blessed and it doesn't take you to thanking God. The epiphany, I see it. It's beautiful. It's valuable. And as I look back over my life, I have to tell you, the treasure hunt is really one of the key themes of my life. Yeah, it led me to do some stupid stuff, like break into houses. Um, but there really is nothing like the joy of discovering a treasure. You know, one of my favorite things to do, my wife hates this show, but I love Antiques Roadshow. I love it. It brings me to tears all the time. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, Google top 10 most valuable Antique Roadshow, you know, reveals, and you see if you can watch it without crying. Did you see the one I posted on the Belmont RUF? But yeah, this old man, he's got this blanket. It's a blanket. Now, sure, his family tells him that it had been given to the family by Kit Carson, so that's kind of a cool thing. But that when, the, when the, the, the dealer guy, the appraiser, tells him that it's worth what, between $350,000 and $500,000, and you see this old man who obviously doesn't have very much money, and all of a sudden, he's fabulously wealthy. And he had no idea. I was watching another one today uh, of a group of baseball cards. But they're baseball cards of the Boston Red Stockings, who eventually became the Boston Braves and then the Atlanta Braves. And the, you know, this great-great-grandmother had them because she had the boys staying in her boarding house. And the dealer gets choked up, even telling her about it, like, we've never seen this. You here have a letter signed by Spaulding like from whom the baseball like sporting good company is named. We don't have anything like this in the museum, in the Hall of Fame. It's worth a million dollars. 
And, and, and the, the dealer, like the appraiser, is getting choked up at the thought of just being in the presence of something so extraordinary, so valuable. Like that helps me to get my heart around this parable. Because it's hard for me to get in touch with that kind of feeling, that kind of emotion. But I have had some cool moments. One of these books is worth about $3,000. Serious. Both of these I found at estate sales. One of them I paid $2 for, the other one I paid a dollar for. And let me tell you, like when you find something, like this one here, and you open it up, and you're like, first American edition, October 1998. And your pulse starts to quicken. And then you pull out your phone, and you look up how to identify Harry Potter first edition. And you find there's several marks. And you, so you start going through it. On the back, there's a blurb from the London Guardian rather than Publishers Weekly. Check. It doesn't say year one on the spine. Check. Inter, inter price, $16.95 rather than $19.95. Check. 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 And all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is pretty dang cool. Now, now at that point, you, it, it actually creates a bit of a burden because then you're like, okay, I have this thing that's so valuable. Like, I should sell it. And I come home and I tell my wife, she's like, well, sell it. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to get ripped off. If I take it to a book dealer, they're going to rip me off. And so it becomes this thing that's so valuable that I don't want to sell it. But eventually, of course, my kids will go to college and I'm going to have to sell it because I value them more. But have you ever, have you ever been there? Have you ever been there to where you, you just, this discovery, this discovery. Look at this. With joy, it says that they sell everything. That's a really important point to understand about the nature of the kingdom and the nature of the gospel. They don't begrudgingly sacrifice everything, and then because they've made themselves miserable, God blesses them. No, they see the thing, and they're filled with joy in the anticipation of getting it. So it's with joy they delight to sell everything. The first guy buys a field to get a treasure. The second guy looks like he pays retail. But it doesn't matter. All that matters is that they possess the treasure so they can delight in it. And again, I said the common element in both parables is they sell everything with joy. That's an important phrase, to possess the treasure. With joy. Is there anything you would pursue with such reckless abandon? we need a little more reckless abandon in our Christianity. I think we're far too safe. I think we uh, diversify our joy, cover our bases rather than putting all of our eggs in one basket. There's something about this parable about selling everything they have because of the beauty of this thing that they want to have. Now, the, the second guy, it doesn't seem like, it seems like he pays retail, okay, because he's looking for fine pearls. It doesn't say that he's like diving in the sea to get them. So it, seem, it seems that the setting of the second parable is he's at a market and he's kind of looking through pearls and he finds a fine one and he sells everything he has to have this thing. So it doesn't seem really like in that case he's getting a good deal. It doesn't matter. When he sees this thing and he sees what it's really worth, 
It's worth selling everything. I don't know about you, but sometimes I hear Christian testimonies, and all I hear people talk about is all the really great stuff they used to do. And, and of course, they're telling it because it's a Christian testimony. They're telling it like, oh, you know, I used to do this, and I used to do that, and now I know Jesus. And you're like, yeah, but to hear you tell the story, it sounds like you're just kind of missing all the things that you gave up. Christian testimonies, real Christian testimonies are with joy. I give up that stuff and I move to this. Like Paul in Philippians 3, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrew. I was it, man. I had it all. As far as my relationship with God, I was faultless. But now I consider everything dung. And that's actually a very polite translation compared to what I had before. Being in the kingdom is like this experience. Can you relate to that? Have you found something that changes your value system? That everything that you had, everything you valued now has been turned upside down. I mean, it's, how do you know if something's expensive? Well, it depends on the thing, right? I mean, $500 is a lot to pay for lunch. But it's a great deal if it's a new car, right? There are some things that are worth spending everything. What has following Jesus cost you? Has your life been interrupted at all? I remember uh, reading a, a Puritan book, this incredibly convicting quote, this guy Jeremiah Burroughs, um, a book called Gospel Fear. The whole book is about um, God saying how delighted he is in people that tremble in his word. And Jeremiah Burroughs said, when was the last time you changed a course of action simply because God's word said to? Not because, well, if I, if I don't do this, then I'm going to bring shame upon me, or I'm going to be embarrassed, or it's going to hurt me. Like, those are all helpful secondary reasons. But has God's word ever convinced you to change something, or do something different, or give something up? Equally, maybe, or maybe, not, maybe even more important is the question, if you're a Christian, do you think you got a raw deal? Or do you still think that you've got the greatest treasure imaginable at a steal? Again, Christians are not just those who grudgingly give up everything. That's stoicism. Though I will tell you, a lot of people are very confused about the two. There are a lot of people, if you would hear them talk, you would get the impression that they think the more miserable you are, the more holy you are. Seriously. People that are basically like, you know, God doesn't want you to enjoy anything. Or sometimes it, it sounds very spiritual, like, you know, all you need is God. You don't need other people in your life. You don't need this or that. All you need is you and Jesus. And that's actually Gnosticism. It's not Christianity at all. Christianity is not, nothing is good, nothing is beautiful except Jesus. But Christianity says Jesus is the greatest treasure. But it's the greatest delight that puts all other delights in their place. It's not the great delight that says there is nothing else delightful. Because he created a world and he looked at it and he said, this is good. 
You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from certain foods or from sex because God created it to be received with thanksgiving. They mean sex in the context of marriage. But he says, you know, you're a good minister of Christ Jesus. This is what Paul tells his protege, Timothy. If you point this out to the Christians. Because even back in the New Testament era, it was very popular for people to say anything that feeds the flesh. And what they meant by that was anything that makes you feel good, anything that you enjoy is somehow less spiritual. And the more holy you are, the less you'll enjoy life. But Christianity has always been, true Christianity has always been life-affirming. Life-affirming. Christianity is not Stoicism. However, fighting effectively against things that tempt us to put them above Christ requires wrestling with this idea of treasure and what you value. The word glory, actually, in the Hebrew and the Greek, has the connotation of weight. And it really is this question that we need to ask ourselves. What is weighty to you? What is weighty to you? I I love this. uh, Isaiah 53 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's all about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a remarkable passage. And there's this amazing little phrase there in Isaiah 53, verse 3, where it says that we esteemed him not. If you want to know what's the ultimate way of understanding what does it mean to be a sinner, sometimes Christians throw that term around and maybe you push back against that a little bit. Let me explain what it means. It doesn't mean really that you broke the rules so much as it means you esteem Jesus not. It means that he's not weighty. It means that he's light compared to other things that are more weighty. I remember years ago talking with a student, many, many years ago, who had gotten involved in a really, um, really bad relationship. And she really was on the verge of going down a road that she knew was going to be a bad, bad place to go. And I very distinctly remember talking to her about kind of, you're at this precipice. You can go here and you can go here. And I could just see the look in her eyes. Jesus, if you put Jesus and this boy in the scales, this boy was outweighing Jesus. And that's a profound moment. And it's a moment that you need to wrestle with. Is there anything that if you put it in the scales, Jesus would be lighter, that this other thing would be heavier? Is there something, is there something that you would be willing to sell Jesus for? Now, let me tell you this. Your delight in your treasure can grow. It's one thing to see a treasure at first impression. It's another thing to nurture your delight in it. I think sometimes when I think about relationships, uh, so often, you know, people get in a relationship, maybe, you know, love at first sight, you know, which I don't generally think is a good idea. But sometimes it's how you get started. Maybe it gets you off of sort of this lethargic, neutral place that is hard to get moved from. But then there's this sense in which sometimes people get so focused on the relationship that they lose sight of the other person. And like the relationship becomes the project. 
rather than what is it about this other person that I found so beautiful. And it can happen with Jesus that way too. Like sometimes you can like walk with Jesus a long time and just get so caught up in all the things you're supposed to do and all the things that Christians are supposed to do and not do that you lose sight of casting the eyes of faith on the crucified Lord. Now, Jesus is the treasure we're sacrificing all to possess. He is full of glory and beauty. And and when you see something so beautiful, you don't want to just look at it. You want to have it somehow. Nobody put this better than C.S. Lewis in an essay called The Weight of Glory. And I don't know if you've ever read this. It's worth reading the whole thing. But let me give you this little this little quote, and see if you can resonate with the way he describes it. He says, We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That's why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves that though they cannot, sorry, that though we cannot, yet these projections can enjoy in themselves that beauty, grace, and power of which nature is the image. That's why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. It's that Narnia image, right? We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. So if that is what Christianity is about, why do we see so little of that kind of joyful abandon and longing in our lives? And I think one of the the reasons Lewis touches on is that we've tried so hard to satisfy our longings with so much less than that. He goes on and says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Or maybe Woody Allen gets it right. He was asked one time what he believed in. And he simply said, I believe in the power of distraction. Sometimes we kind of try to kill our desires so that we can live without longing. Because living without longing, while you sort of are content to live in sort of muted grays rather than the full rainbow of colors that life should be, it's a lot less painful and disappointing. You get used to it. Or you distract yourselves so that you never have to think about it. That's probably more what's going on in our age. 
Or maybe it's because we're so committed to safety that we would never put all of our eggs in one basket. When combined with pluralistic, pluralistic relativism in our culture, which says no one religion can be right, we're kind of paralyzed into sitting on the sidelines. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? But isn't it possible that our lack of joy and experiencing God is tied to our lack of putting all our eggs in one basket? Because what Jesus is saying here is not, you know, sell some of what you have to get this treasure, but make sure you diversify. Because what if you're wrong about this treasure, right? Jesus is saying the key to delighting in the gospel and delighting in the kingdom is not to diversify, but to put all your eggs in one basket. If we think of the gospel as ordinary, it will produce in us an ordinary sacrifice. Listen to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Is this what you think about the gospel? Or do you think it's just a little transaction where you pray to prayer and now you get to go to hell, go to heaven instead of hell when you die? If that's what you think of Christianity, it's hard for you to delight much in it because the sheer value of it hadn't happened yet. But Christianity is so much more than that. Christianity is about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. When you read something like that, do you wonder if you believe the same gospel and know the same God? Sometimes I do. It's because I diversify my joys. There's something Paul has got here, this light in the, in the glory of Christ, seeing the light shining in the glory of Christ, his beauty does something so much deeper than circumstances. There's a, a rootedness and a joy that can't be taken away no matter what. And the best way to grow in your delight of Jesus is your treasure is to see more and more clearly what Jesus gave up because of what he treasured. See, here's this amazing theme in the Bible. We read it in the call to worship, right? That God talks about how his people are his treasured possession. You know what a remarkable thing that is? Like, none of the religions of the East have that idea. Islam thinks that idea is crazy. Like, God is merciful, Allah is merciful, but he doesn't delight in his people, treasure them. He's so sovereign and supreme that he would never stoop to be that, to, to be a God who gushes. But the God of the Bible is a God who gushes. The God of the Bible is the one who says, you're the apple of my eye. You're my treasured possession. I mean, Jesus is this amazing treasure, Right? But what is even more amazing is that he thinks of us as a treasure. 
And beyond that, he sells everything, even his glory, to get it. And that's Philippians chapter 2, right? That Jesus did not consider equality with God, which he had, but he did not consider it something not to be grasped like something to be understood, but grasped like held on to. Jesus did not consider equality with God, which he had, to be something to be held on to, but he gave it up freely because of what he treasured. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane did not want to go to the cross. You understand that? He prayed to his Father, if there be any other way, any other way what? Any other way for us, his treasured possession, to be united to him. If there be any other way, then let this cup pass from me. The cup is an image to the cup of God's wrath, which in Isaiah, God says, I am going to make my enemies drink the cup of my wrath to the dregs, to the very bottom. And Jesus says, I don't want to drink this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus drank that cup, that he went to the cross despising the shame, but he went to the cross for the joy set before him. And do you know what the Bible says the joy set before him was? Us. It's an amazing thing in Hebrews. Paul actually turns the image around. All through the Bible, God has spoken of us, sorry, as, as him as our inheritance. That the true inheritance, even the promised land, is, is an image leading us to understand that the true inheritance is God himself. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you forever. Even as he showed in the garden back with Adam and Eve, I will be with you. But in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, no, what's even more amazing is not that God is our inheritance, but we're his inheritance we are the reward, Psalm 22 says, after Jesus was crucified, that he will see the reward. He will get his inheritance. It's a pretty remarkable psalm to talk about somebody being killed and then inheriting something. It only makes sense in light of the gospel because Jesus died, was resurrected, and receives us as his great inheritance, his great reward. You know, when the Bible talks about this word redemption, it means to buy back. It's actually not a, it's not a religious word at all in the first century. It's interesting. Some people get really uptight if you try to use, like, non-religious words to talk about the gospel. I don't know why they get upset about that, because the New Testament does it all the time. There were lots of Old Testament religious words that have been translated into Greek, because the Greek Old Testament is what people in the first century used, the Jews used. And yet, the New Testament is full of words taken from the marketplace, like this one, redemption. Redemption means to buy something. And that's what we get here. Paul says we're not our own, we've been bought with a price. Jesus gives all to possess us. Now, all this is important for those coming to faith in Christ trying to figure out what Christianity is about, but it's also important for those of us who have a tendency to lose sight of what a treasure we have and are kind of stuck in this diversifying approach to trying to find joy. Let me give you a couple practical examples and uh, applications as we close. The treasure parables show us something really important about the nature of the kingdom and about the nature of what it means to be human, and it's this. You and I were made for more than just knowing things. 
You and I were made from more than just knowing about God, even knowing all kinds of good theology. The kingdom is about love and desire, value and treasure. And so you have to ask yourself, what brings you delight? Remember Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, Jesus is the greatest delight, but one of the things I love, we didn't get to sing this song tonight, but we sing it sometimes, Thou Lovely Source of True Delight, written by Anne Steele. She's a Baptist hymn writer from the 18th century. And she understands so well that having Jesus, the, the lovely source of true delight, doesn't mean that we have no other pleasures. But Jesus is the delight that puts all other delights in their proper place. And the way that happens is when you see all these other delights as good gifts from him. What happens in idolatry is you take good gifts and you disconnect them from the giver. And you begin to think, I have this thing and I have to hold on to this thing with all my might because this gives me joy. Rather than saying, God has given me this wonderful gift. And God is the one who can give me other wonderful gifts. He decides to take this one away. But what happens so much is we forget about the giver and we put all our hope and we grab hold of the gifts and we hold on to them for dear life. Thankfulness to God for the good gifts that you have is the best way to fight against idolatry because idolatry disconnects thankfulness from your gifts. It's important. You have to ascribe ultimate value to him because you're ascribing it to something. There is some bottom line in your life. What can't Jesus ask you to sell? That's your real treasure. And it's so important that we realize there is a battle for ultimate value going on in our hearts. I love this place in Paul, uh, in Romans 8.18. He says this, maybe you've heard these words. For I reckon, or some translations say, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now that, that word consider, that word reckon, it's actually an accounting term. What do you do when you reckon something? You count it up. So what Paul is saying is, I'm counting. I'm assessing value. The present sufferings or the glory that is to be revealed. What does that mean that he does as a regular practice? He takes stock of what he has in Christ. I know it's kind of unseemly with, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, kind of in his treasure house, just sort of looking at all his money. But in a sense, that's what God wants you to do. It's not enough just for you to know, yeah, I've got a full bank account. No, he wants you to relish in it, to rejoice in it, to count it up. It's true. Paul is counting up his treasures. And in doing that, he's taking joy by anticipation. It's like, I don't know, maybe you guys don't do this, but this illustration works for me. It's like the joy of winning an eBay auction. Like I'm already enjoying it before I get the item in the mail. It's true. Think of what Jesus liquidated for you. And, and try, to, try to take stock of the treasure that you have. Right? And if you're somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a long time and you're not sure you want to do this anymore, I'll just tell you this. Nothing brings regret like realizing you sold a great treasure. It's that powerful story in the Old Testament of Esau selling his birthright 
for some soup. And there's some of you maybe that are tempted to do that very thing. Don't sell. Don't sell. Your purity, your integrity, your popularity. It's important to value the gifts that we have. The gospel. The gospel. Whatever you've learned or tasted of his goodness, don't sell it. And sometimes you need the wisdom of your friends and your community to help you truly value what you have. Because sometimes it's not so easy to spot a treasure. If I showed you these two books and you're like, one of them's worth like $3,000, how can I tell? Well, I couldn't tell. I had to talk to experts. And sometimes you can't tell what's the most valuable thing in your life. Sometimes you lose perspective and you need that community to say, this is valuable and this is not, particularly when the thing that we're talking about is something so countercultural. Listen, to be a Christian in this day and age means that you're going to feel crazy most of the time. Because to believe in Jesus and to follow him puts you in direct opposition to the values of the world. There were times in the history of the world when being a Christian meant going along with the flow, where every cultural institution and every authority structure supported belief in the Christian scriptures and Christian God. It's not that way anymore. To believe in Christ and to follow him is to go against the grain of the culture. And you will feel crazy. And all the more reason you need a community that can help you see what's truly valuable. Again, treasure parables show us that the kingdom is about more than just knowledge. But I'll just close with this. It's hard to properly value something you don't know very much about. Like, I had to learn about what were valuable books. I had to learn, like, which are valuable. I love to go shop estate sales. I usually just go for vinyl records, really. And then sometimes I stumble upon a book. I actually know a lot more about books, but I really wish I knew more about records. But I've got all kinds of apps that I can look stuff up. I've got a community of people that I can look to and resort to. And you know what's interesting? When I find something valuable, you know the first thing I want to do when I find a valuable record? I text my friend Matt and my friend Phil. They're two of my former students who are record dealers. And it's not because I want to gloat. Hey, look at what I found. It's because I want somebody that knows the value of this thing to rejoice with me. And it makes it, it, makes it more joyful. What if, you, what if the gospel did that to you? What if the gospel, what if you valued something and it brought you even more joy to talk about what you find so valuable in it? Have you ever sat down with a friend over coffee or over a meal and said, let me just tell you what I find so valuable and beautiful about Jesus? That would be a really good thing to do as a regular spiritual practice. It would be good to do in our small groups. It would be good to do in our friendships. Again, it actually would help you, and it helps me appreciate valuable things to talk about them and to tell people why I find them so valued, valuable. And there, isn't there something there about the kingdom? You know, when I was in college, I had a very vague understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. And it doesn't mean that just because you can study some theology that all of a sudden you're going to have a richer experience, but it's really hard to have a richer experience of the, of the cross than you have an understanding of it. So I don't want you to have a vague understanding. I want you to have a deep understanding. Study it. Relish in it. But then understand that it's not just enough to understand it. Can you taste it and enjoy it? That's what it's about.
That's the point of gospel community. That's the point of the scriptures. That's the point of the Lord's Supper whenever you celebrate that. The gospel preached in a picture. Jesus wants us to taste and see that the Lord is good because the kingdom is about treasure and value and desire. Let's pray.